But as a bit of an intro, I wanted to share one of the quotes that has always been quite formative for me since I came across it. And that is a quote from St. Arrhenius of Lyons who said, The glory of God is a person fully alive. And to be alive consists in beholding God. And so let's pray this morning that as we study his word, we would behold God in a way that opens us up to new life. Let's pray. God, we want to live as fully human, fully alive, fully open and fully responsive to who you are, the call you have in our lives, the freedom you invite us into. So I pray that as we look into your word, you would move by your spirit in a powerful way and bring these truths to bear on each of our hearts as individuals, in our marriages, in our friendship circles, as a community, as a church. Thank you for this time and just pray and ask that you would richly bless it for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. So there are a lot of competing stories in our culture vying to define what it means to be fully alive in our day and age from those who would advocate unrestrained pleasure-seeking to those who would look within for enlightenment to uh, those who would promote a very eclectic and complex religious system. The pursuit of peak human joy and fulfillment is a major driving force within our culture. But regardless of where you come into this idea of what it means to be fully alive as a human being, I'd really commend to you the second chapter of Genesis because it offers a perspective on what it means to be fully alive and fully human that um, I don't really think has a modern parallel due to its breadth and depth. And therefore, I think it's a voice that everybody in our culture should consider, whether or not you consider yourself religious or spiritual or believer or not. See, Genesis 2 extends the plot line and the narrative established in Genesis 1, and it contributes to it and then builds upon it. And actually in a pretty remarkable way, because it continues to hone in on a special element of God's creation, which is humanity. Genesis 1 was already shocking enough for ancient readers in its insistence that every single human being, male and female, were made in the image of God. And what would have struck ancient readers is just how um, the place of prominence that humanity was given within the creation story. See, in most pagan mythologies and creation stories, humans get created, but it's usually in order to, for the gods to kind of download all the menial work that they, don't, they no longer want to do. So um, the Enuma Elish, for example, I mentioned that last week, the Babylonian creation story has humans being created so that the gods can delegate all the uh, menial, uh, tiresome um, activities that they were responsible for, but they don't want to do that anymore. They want to party, they want to drink, they want to carouse with each other. And so humanity, in a pagan context, gets created in order to be a slave class. So when Genesis 1 comes along, and then Genesis 2 builds on it, the story that serves as an interruption there is massive. And it's kind of maybe lost to us in its significance because we don't think of humanity as a slave class. But try and think through what it must have been like to presume not just that humanity wasn't made in the image of God, but that humanity was basically a, 
um, tool for the gods to use as they wanted to enter into the most degrading, abusive, enslaving practices. And that's just the way the world was, or so people thought, until God, through Moses, reveals these truths. And so in Genesis 2, we kind of zoom in on some specifics related to these first image bearers, Adam and Eve. So I'm going to invite Carrie up, and she's going to read uh, Genesis 2, uh, from verse 4 to the end of the chapter. Thank you. Um, so I'll be reading Genesis 2, 4 to 25. It won't be on the screen, so feel free to follow along in your Bible or on your phone or to just listen. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the river, the third river, is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman 
from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they became one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's a lot to discover in this text, especially when we read it in conversation with chapter one. I mentioned last week we could spend 40 weeks on just chapter one. So we have to do high flyover. Next week, I'm gonna spend some time on how these texts speak specifically to humanity's relationship with the environment. I wanna talk about um, the divine design for marriage, the power of sex and sexuality, and get into a little bit about these trees and the knowledge of good and evil. But today, I want us to focus on four relationships that this chapter in Genesis highlights. And they may not be quite there, obvious to us, I wanna draw them out because they really do set the context for what's happening here in two and then in chapter three. Genesis two shows us that there are four relationships, four dimensions of, um, to which we are called to be connected in order to be fully human and fully alive. So let's start with something that is kind of hidden in plain sight for most people. One of the claims of the early chapters of Genesis is that we are created by relationship and therefore we're created for relationship. What I mean by that and what theologians mean by that is if you remember in Genesis 1, I talked about how there is one creator God. But when the one creator God goes to make humanity, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It's a plural, and there's all kinds of debates about what that means, um, but I certainly subscribe to the view that when you see God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then in the New Testament, it's revealed in John chapter one that Jesus, the Word of God, was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him and through him, that this one God is comprised of three persons in a mysterious way that we can't fully understand. But what Genesis 1 and 2 are claiming is that this a three-in-one God who is in himself relationship created all that is, but created us in his image. And that means if part of what it means to be like God, if God is relationship, it means that we are built for relationship as well. And without some of these core relationships in place, without these connections being strong and vibrant, something about our humanity gets diminished, it gets lost. And so there are four dimensions of fully alive humanity that Genesis 2 highlights and then it really comes into focus in Genesis 3 when we find out about this disruption of sin and how it affects these four dimensions. So the first is our relationship with creation. Humanity is meant to have a relationship and be connected to creation. Now this isn't altogether tremendously obvious to us because in the translations we miss out on some word plays. 
But the Hebrew word um, man, or that's translated Adam, is Adam. And when God gives Adam, or sorry, when God forms Adam from the ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. It's just Adam with an A-H. It's a wordplay. It would be like if, if, I, uh, if God said, I'm going to use clay to make a person, and I've called the person clay. I've named him clay. It's a, it's a wordplay. So right from the start, God takes the stuff of creation, the dirt, and he forms humanity, the man. And then he places the man in the garden to take care of it and to work it. And so right away, there's this establishment that man is placed in this world to have a relationship with creation. From Now, as it relates to thinking about ourselves as a person, that's really, really important because what it means is who you are in your embodied personhood is a good thing. To have a body is a good thing. To be a part of material reality is a good thing. That was one of the big lessons of Genesis 1, that all of material reality is really, really good. And if you don't have that as a theological foundation for life or for your own humanity, some significant things are going to get lost, and you're probably at risk of taking two wrong turns. The first is asceticism, the second is hedonism. Asceticism is a philosophy that essentially says the body and all the sensory, uh, um, all the sensory elements of being a created being is evil. That the body is kind of the shell. Um, the soul is what is pure and perfect within a, a human being, but the body is something lower. It's something diminished. It's something dangerous. And so asceticism is about learning to deprive the body or even punish or abuse the body to keep it in line and to keep it from corrupting one's soul. That idea is very prevalent in Greco-Roman thought or Greek philosophy. It does not have its grounding in the first, well, in the scripture at all, but certainly um, the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 pushes against that idea, that idea pretty hard. Adam is made from the ground. His created personhood is very, very good. There's never an indication in the early chapters of Genesis that one's body is somehow the enemy or simply a shell for the soul. And that's why as scripture unfolds, we're never taught to view our bodies as something which should be abused or deprived in order for us to grow spiritually. The second wrong turn you can do is into hedonism. If you believe in a fundamental dualism that says, well, the spirit and the spiritual or my heart as a metaphor for the soul, that's what matters. And what you do with your body doesn't really matter because it's, it's just a shell. Then you can do whatever you want with your body. And some people, instead of going the aesthetic, the aesthetic route of depriving the body, they just go full into pleasure. Because what really matters in life isn't what you do with your body, it's what you do with your soul. But underneath that is still a fundamental disconnection. And it's a way of looking at material reality in our bodies, which is, as scripture unfolds, it's going to be sinful. Because our bodies are a gift, and they're good. And therefore we nurture it, and we take care of it, because it's something entrusted to us through which we love God and love other people. And we don't have a view of ourselves that simply says, well, we're just, um, 
we're just souls kind of in this meat package for a little time and then we go off to heaven. And so therefore we can abuse our bodies, whether it's through overt hedonistic pursuits, sex, drugs, rock and roll, or even just not taking care of ourselves on a day-to-day level. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, from the earth man has his body and his body belongs to his essential being. Man's body is not his prison, his shell, or simply his exterior, but man himself. And having this relationship with creation of knowing that your material reality and body is very good, there's also this clue here that to have a relationship with creation is to have a relationship with the ground level of life and to be in the world for a purpose. And so this relationship with creation, where God forms man from the dust of the ground, is giving us a not-so-subtle hint that we have a purpose here beyond just mere survival. We have a divine design, and we're meant to have a relationship with creation. Second level of a relationship that you need to be a fully alive human being is relationship with other people. Now, Genesis 2 spends a lot of time highlighting the male-female relationship in marriage, and we'll get to that next week. I'll, we'll do a bit more of a deep dive into that and the dynamics that are going on there. Really, really fascinating, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees, which is in verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the first not good that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, every day, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. This is the first time where God says, that's not, it's not good. And again, that makes sense, right? If God, who is a relationship, creates a man, it's not good for man to live in isolation in this kind of uh, atomistic way, just me, myself, and I amidst God's creation. God says, I'm gonna create a helper that's suitable for him. And the word in Hebrew helper is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R. And the term, uh, according to many scholars, but I think Kenneth Bailey said it well in the evangelical, I think it was Dictionary of Theology, the term does not refer to a lowly assistant, but to a powerful figure who comes to help and save someone who is in trouble. And the reason why that, there's that weight to the word is because while the word does get used throughout the Old Testament as a generic helper or support, the vast majority of the time, I think it's over 77% of the time, it refers to God being the azer of his people, right? We wouldn't look at God being the help of our lives and saying like, yeah, God is just kind of a little extra little bonus that he kind of tops me up. He's inferior to me. He's like my assistant who helps me live my life. No, when we recognize God is our true help, our true azer, we're saying, I need God. I can't fully function in this world without God. And so there's this powerful, dignifying um, root that Genesis 2 is giving to females. And again, we live in a, in a culture and in a context that is very pro-women. That is very not the norm through history. And it's very not the norm even in many places around the world today. And so to ancient people, the idea that, again, male and female are made in the image of God, that was a tough pill for people to swallow. That went against every cultural current. And now to say that women are in some kind of a position to bring into a man's life that which enhances and allows the man to become fully human, 
That was a powerful idea. That's a deeply dignifying understanding of what it means to be a woman. Eve is an Azar who's not a lowly assistant there to just help Adam advance his agenda, but one who comes alongside to help Adam fulfill his role, and together they garden. Now, you'll notice that in a lot, most of your translations, it'll say that Eve, you have this weird thing where God calls, um, causes Adam to go to sleep, and then um, Eve, okay, I should, I should pause there for a second. I'm aware there's different people in the room, and right away, this is a, a non-starter, because you're like, this is absurd. Like all this language, taking a rib out, and that, I mentioned this last week, I'll mention this a little bit more next week, I'll keep building it. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 isn't scientific mechanistic signaling, it's theological signaling, which means it is not correct to read an ancient text like this and criticize it for not using the language and procedural mechanistic explanations of science that we would expect as 21st century people. What we need to do is to start by understanding the context, how creation stories were written back then, and then to say, what did that mean to the early readers, and then how does it affect us? Because to dismiss these texts because they don't seem scientific to us is really dumb because they're not scientific texts. There's lots of interesting engagements we can have with these texts, and I'll provide some resources over the following weeks that are good starting points to that, but we need to understand these texts are about conveying meaning because to the culture that it was given, what's much more important than how the universe and all the different mechanisms that came into place of how things came to being was why. What's the purpose and function of creation? And Genesis 1 and 2 is going there. So with that in mind, you can imagine how significant it is when the text reveals that God takes Adam's rib, which isn't a great translation. I actually don't truly know why they translated his rib here because every time the word comes up in the rest of the Bible, it's just translated side. It's like the side of a building. Um, and so it really just should be, it, you know, Eve is taken from Adam's side. And that, again, that's significant because Jewish theologians, Christian theologians, all would agree with Matthew Henry in terms of the theological significance of that, which is, a, women are made of a higher grade of material than men, right? Men are made from the ground, the dirt. <laughs> women are made from a more refined material, right? The fully formed man. And again, that's significant. Um, that's, that's very, very important because it, it undercuts right away any worldview that would allow men or any uh, male-dominated culture to say, see, women are for our exploitation. They're beneath us, they're lower than us. So the theological signaling in Genesis 2 is, has real-world ramifications. It's very controversial during its time because no one had an imagination for it. But that's often what God, God's revelation does, is it overturns the common assumptions of the way things are and the way things ought to be. So we see Eve being formed out of Adam's side, and it actually says Adam is formed from the ground, but Eve is built. That's the Hebrew word, it means built. And it refers to when you're building a structure. And if you think about Genesis 1, one of the meta views of Genesis 1 in the seven days is God is building a temple. Again, there's a not so subtle signaling here, theologically, that men 
and men are to view women, women are to view themselves as a, um, not as a different creature in kind in terms of like they image, um, they don't image God, they do, but there's something very distinct about the creation of woman that infuses the woman with greater, uh, kind of a greater level of dignity and holds up a woman in a way that there is no ancient parallel to. Matthew Henry said, woman, the woman was created from the side of man to be beside him. That's the theological signaling. Not from his head in order to rule him, nor from his foot to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. And that's a poetic way that a Puritan scholar looks at these texts and say, look what God is doing. God is teaching us how all men are to view the women in their lives. Now again, for us, we can be like, well, yeah, duh, of course. But in a context that was often brutal to women and saw them as beneath slaves, or at least on the same level of slaves, this text is very, very important. I don't actually think you can ground ideas like human rights and the fundamental dignity of all people without grounding them in Genesis 1 and 2. Like Adam, the woman possessed God's image, but the fact that she was taken neither from his head nor his foot suggests that the woman was not to rule over the man, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, but nor was the man to oppress the woman, and Peter talks about that in 1 Peter. But don't miss what's at the core of this, that it's not good for man to be alone. We are created to be relational beings. I'll, I'll spell out kind of the marriage and sexual dynamic and and the gender dynamic next week. But at its heart, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And of course, you can read the end. It's not good for the woman to be alone either. We, We need each other. We're built by relationship for relationship. I've mentioned this before, but I would say every month now, there's a new article that comes out lamenting the rise of loneliness within our culture, of people feeling isolated, especially in contexts where they're surrounded by a lot of people. They're in dense or, um, uh, uh, population, population dense high places like a city, urban centers, and yet their felt sense of connection to other people is waning and they feel more and more lonely. And what isn't being set up here is the idea that marriage cures loneliness, right? First of all, we don't need a spouse in order to be fully human. Jesus establishes that, Paul does. But we do need each other. We need relationships in our lives. We need friendships in our lives. And without strong friendships, where we can be vulnerable with each other, where we can laugh and cry together, where we can journey with each other, I'm not saying all the people in your life are going to be like that. They aren't. But without a core two, three people, loneliness can overtake us. And loneliness is fundamentally not good. Alienation and isolation are not good We're not meant to live autonomously as people. Relationships are such a gift of God. And we lose something important if we try and live in a way where I'm holding people at arm's length, either because of wounds that um, I've experienced or whether just out of a sense of pride of I don't want to appear weak. God says, it's not good for you to be alone. You need to have people in your life supporting you and loving you. A human being fully alive has vital and meaningful connections with, and friendships and deep bonds with other people. 
Third is relationship with the self. Notice at the end of Genesis 2, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there psychologically. I could probably sit down with Carrie and she could probably go through a number of levels in which this is a, a pretty sophisticated way of saying Adam and Eve are together They're in this garden environment. God has set them up in this creation for flourishing and they're naked, obviously physically, but there's a lot of levels that you can live um, clothed and hidden versus naked, right? Emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, uh, relationally. And this term here is clearly meant to denote physical nakedness, but again, the theological signaling is Adam and Eve can be together. Humanity's designed to be together in such a way that there doesn't need to be covering. There doesn't need to be, you know, to use Brene Brown's language, you don't have to armor up. You don't have to go through life with a fundamental posture of suspicion. Humans were meant to be settled in themselves, comfortable in their own skin. Not just being physically naked before each other, but emotionally naked and vulnerable and open with each other. There was just no hesitation. There was no trying to anticipate and, and to understand what, there's no anxiety. There was no um, fundamental angst that got in the way that played interference or, or um, acted as a speed bump to building connections with people. There was just a really fundamental freedom and settledness and non-anxious presence with each other. There was no shame. There was no sense of guilt or self-condemnation. A lot of people live with shame and guilt, and they live with condemnation, and it's crippling. But to live with a clear conscience and an unhurried, unanxious soul is a real gift. But it's not just meant for the few who can aspire to great heights of religiosity. God desired that for all of us, and still does. We were designed to live as those who don't have any need to hide or to shrink or to flee or in any way live under the condemnation in whatever form, right? No body dysmorphia, no crippling anxiety, no relentless guilt, no fear-driven addiction cycles, no self-degrading thoughts, no emotional numbing. Our inner world, our sense of self was designed to be flooded with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And a human being fully alive lives from this sense of integrity. And I mean integrity there not just in terms of being a fundamentally honest and integral person, but a fundamental integrated whole person who doesn't have to protect and perform and angle in certain social contexts or not trying to display certain things about themselves but hide other things because if this people or if all people saw this side of me, I'd be fundamentally unlovable. So I play this game, sometimes consciously, often unconsciously, of marketing myself to people dependent on the context. That's not the way we're meant to live. It's an exhausting way to live. And Genesis 3 will give us insight into why so many of us live that way but it's not the way that we're designed to live. We're designed to have a strong relationship with ourselves, to be at home in ourselves, our interior world at peace and harmonized in God's love. And lastly, we're designed to have a relationship with God. In Genesis 2-7, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living being. Again, we can read that, and we're like, okay, that's kind of neat, um, but it's tremendously significant. First of all, you see God forming man from the dust of the ground like a potter, right? And he calls him, call, he takes the, um, takes the Ad- Adama, and he says, you're now Adam. And then it says he breathed. And every theologian will tell you this language is very, very intimate. It's, it's a, it's, uh, one theologian said it's warmly personal because the idea is that God gets face to face with the man. And it's not like God from like the far corner of the universe is like, breath of life, there's like this little breath of life start. Then it pops out of the man. It's that the Lord God gets close to the man face to face and breathes and just goes, It's a very intimate picture. See, Genesis 1 is a high-level, 30,000-foot view of creation. God is, on each of these days, he's forming and then he's filling. And then Genesis 2, the um, kind of the movie screen, the director zooms in on a very, very intimate level. We've gone from the cosmic creation to a little garden. And God is forming this man He's breathing into this man, getting up close and personal. It's, it points to the profound relational dimension of God that we, this God who is, isn't just a great and powerful creator who can call things into existence by mere words of his mouth. This is a tender God. This is a relational God who takes care of forming the man and then takes care of building the woman. Humanity is special. We're getting this ground-level perspective, which is reinforcing the theological significance of Genesis 1, which is this three-in-one God were created by relationship for relationship. Man occupies a special place in the hierarchy of creation, and man enjoys a unique relationship with God by virtue of being the work of God's own hand and being directly animated by God's own breath. And at the same time, he's just dust taken from the earth, mere clay in the hands of a divine potter who exercises absolute mastery over his creation. Jewish rabbis would often teach in application of this verse, you should always carry around in your coat pockets. In one pocket, a clump of dirt, and in the other pocket, gold. You take it with you wherever you go. When you come to be tempted to think of yourself in a way that is worthless or lowly, and you need to be reminded that you are unique and that you are special and that you have divine purpose and divine dignity, you take out the gold and you remind yourself, I am made in the image of God. And for those times where you are tempted to be too proud to autonomous, to individual. I don't need God, I don't need other people, where you forget that you are a mere mortal and that you are not God and that you need to walk humbly before him, you take out the dirt. But, but you gotta have both. We are made from the dust, but we are infused with God's life in a way that no other creature is. And to be fully human and fully alive means being aware that that is what fuels our connection to God. We understand that we're not merely earthbound creatures. That there is some, there's a, Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We understand that we're made for relationship 
even just beyond creation, ourselves and other people, there's a longing to connect with the creator of all that is. So to recap, to be fully alive and fully human means to have right relationship or right connection with creation, others, ourselves, and with God. And that state, when that happens, Scripture calls shalom, which is a Hebrew word that gets translated peace, but it's a richer word than that. It probably means like integrative harmony. It's this sense of wholeness. This is the way life is supposed to be. When I experience God's shalom within and with my neighbor and my vocation in the world and my connection to God, I can live in shalom. It's part of what's smuggled into Jesus' idea of the kingdom of God. When God comes to rule and reign in your life, God begins the work of restoring and reconnecting you on these four levels. It's not just your relationship with him. It's your relationship with your own self-understanding, your relationship to other people, your vocation in the world. God is working on all those levels together. Here's a question for you. How many of you are absolutely rocking the full humanity gig? Just killing it. Just like, I'm, I'm doing awesome. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> now, Genesis 3 is going to tell us why when I frame things like that in terms of what it means to be fully human and fully alive, that seems so disconnected from our everyday life. Genesis 3 is going to give us a lot of insight into that. But for now, what I want you to know and what I want you to see and what I want you to appreciate is that this current state that we find ourselves in, where it seems so hard to maintain even a slightly above average connection with God, ourselves, others, and creation, that, that is a, that's a result of something that has gone wrong. That's not the way it was supposed to be. God wanted us to be thriving on these levels and to live out of these levels. And that's the hope that awaits those who have given their lives over to God in Christ, that when Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth, we'll experience those levels of integratedness. But for today, let me just end by pointing you towards the one who can restore those fractured relationships and maybe give you an insight into how he does that, and that is Jesus. So Jesus is the one who can restore our relationship with creation. We don't necessarily think of Jesus that way, but just the fact that he incarnates himself, that God incarnates himself in human form, Jesus' favorite self-descriptor is son of man, not son of God, it's actually son of man. He uses that as a title more often. It's a theologically weighted term, but part of what it means is I'm just like, like I'm a, I'm, I, am the, I am the human being of human beings. I'm a new Adam. I'm, 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 I'm of the earth. I'm not like a Casper, the heavenly friendly ghost come down and I'm just kind of floating around like, look, touch me. Even after his resurrection of Thomas, right? Like, touch my sides. Feel my hands. Like, I'm, I'm not a ghost. I'm real. But I'm like capital R real. Like I'm the true humanity. I can show you what it means to be a true gardener in the world, to be a human that's on vocation with God. He's who we're meant to be. Jesus can make all these relationships work again. That's why he comes. He's the helper. He's the azer that humanity really needs. And he's the one alone who can make us fully alive and fully human, right? John 1, the word becomes flesh. We've seen the glory of one who's not just fully God, but he's fully man. He gives us a vision for what it means to be fully human. He restores our relationships to other people. He says, I'm going to give you a new command. As I have loved you, love one another. Jesus says, I can restore your relationship with, with other people 
but you have to receive my love first. Because in receiving my divine love, that's gonna recalibrate your own heart. I'm gonna take your heart of stone, I'm gonna make it a heart of flesh, and I'm gonna change your disposition towards other people. So that even my call to love your enemies and to do good that persecute you or malign you or slander you, that will increasingly become a joy for you. As I have loved you, as you've received my love, love other people. Jesus restores our relationship with ourselves. He covers our sin and shame. Hebrews 12 says that we should fix our eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's a shameful thing to be crucified, naked, publicly, beaten, spit upon, demeaned. And the Bible says when Jesus was doing that, what he was doing is he was allowing God the Father to place all the sin and shame of us on him so that we could be clothed and covered by his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be fully exposed and fully shamed so that you could be covered by his grace so that you would no longer have to move through life armoring up, covering yourself, hiding, fleeing from God or from other people. You could begin to live into that newfound freedom. In Jesus, we're allowed and empowered to be both fully known and fully loved. So we don't need to hide. Timothy Keller says, to be loved but not known, so people love you because they don't really know all the ins and outs. That's comforting, but it's ultimately superficial. To be known but not loved is actually our greatest fear. If people really saw who I was, they'd reject me. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness. It fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And so because I'm fully known and fully loved in Christ, I don't need to hide up. I don't need to armor up. I don't need to hide any longer. His grace covers my shame and guilt. And Jesus restores us to relationship with God. And just to put a fine point on it, because we kind of know that, like that's, you know, we often talk in the church, that's the point, Jesus comes to connect us to God. But do you ever notice one of those weird verses in the Bible that kind of gets hidden? John 22, post-resurrection, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, right? God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and in John 22, it says that when Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I am recreating you. I formed Adam from the dust and my breath, and now I'm forming you by the power of my spirit. You have a new identity, you have a new mission, you have new power to live a new kind of life. Jesus alone can resuscitate our spirits and regenerate them with his life. So everyone wants to be fully human, fully alive. There's a lot of competing views on what it means to pursue that, to take hold of it. But I believe the answer is only found in Jesus. Because being alive isn't something that you ultimately achieve, it's something that you can only receive. You can only receive it from the great Azar, the great helper, the great savior Jesus. And so go to him and ask him to begin repairing those four dimensions of your personhood. Ask him to repair the relationships that make life worth living. Go to him and find the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge our need for you. Across these four dimensions, in ways that are known to us, in many ways that are unknown to us, God, by your Spirit, breathe in us and bring us to new life.
In your name we ask these things. Amen.